Over 20 years ago, a young Asatosh Pati came to the United States by way of India, and he ultimately landed in Cleveland, Ohio. He was amazed by what he saw. I started to see industrial companies for the first time in the Midwest, and I saw hardworking, innovation-driven institutions that had been around for like nearly 100 years, and they were driving innovation on a day-to-day basis. Asajos was startled by an irony. These stalwart companies embraced cutting-edge technology, were profitable, hired lots of people, and almost nobody knew who they were. They don't make the covers of the most important magazines that we read, or the newspapers we read, or the, or the news channels that we watch. To Asajos, now a McKinsey senior partner, these unheralded organizations are potent. In fact, they have the capacity to rebuild America's might as a high-tech manufacturing leader and restore the backbone of the U.S. economy. And he is shouting it from the rooftops in his new book, The Titanium Economy, which he co-wrote with McKinsey partners Gaurav Batra and Nick Santhanam. This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of the world's toughest business challenges. I'm your host for today, Lucia Rahili. Let's turn to the phrase titanium economy. What do we mean when we use that phrase? By titanium, we wanted to signify companies that were durable, that were resistant, and technology-driven. And deliberately strike a contrast between people's view of manufacturing, which is seen as old, stodgy, unattractive, and difficult to work in. In fact, they're the opposite of stodgy. McKinsey partner Kim Borden says these companies are trailblazers. They're leveraging advanced analytics, artificial intelligence, and automation in ways that a lot of people don't realize. And a lot of people don't realize what exactly these industrial tech companies do. They provide raw materials and component parts to businesses that go on to create products or deliver services that are critical to our daily lives. Take, for example, a restaurant. If you're a carnivore, you want the meat to be fresh and safe, right? So the seal in which the meat is delivered needs to be quality and on time. Seal there is a leading industrial company that has pioneered new methods for packaging and tracking of meat shipments. It sounds somewhat complicated, but they've leveraged blockchain labels to track chain of custody of meat and ensure that what ends up on your table is the highest quality. And after you've grabbed some, say, fast food, in the name of sustainability, where do all the plates, napkins, and cups go? Casella Waste Systems is one of those companies that has developed solutions to be able to tell the difference between a truly recyclable material and one that is not and actually belongs in a landfill. So how many industrial tech companies exist in the U.S.? Listen to these stats. They're pretty impressive. Over 3,000 are private. About 80% of public companies have sales ranging from a billion to $10 billion. They employ 2,000 to 20,000 people. And there's something else really remarkable. 90% of these companies are profitable. The sector is massively important to the U.S. economy in two ways. Uh, 
the companies themselves drive about $250 billion of GDP of annual revenue growth. The second part, which is equally important, is what we call the amplification cycle. The amplification cycle is a virtuous economic cycle. Theoretically, when people have good jobs, they buy homes and spend money within their communities. The communities then thrive, develop desirable reputations, and people start moving on in. This diversifies the talent pool. One example of a town that boomed thanks to the titanium economy is Simpsonville, South Carolina. It's a great example of a town where you know, companies moved in and then a number of other companies moved into that area. So there's roughly about five companies now in that area. And the impact it has had on the communities, the community is not big, it is probably 40,000 people, but the impact it has had is just profound. You look at the average uh, per capita income, uh, you look at the high levels of employment, you look at the uh, you know, and by the way, you can look at other uh, economic indicators as well around you know economic inclusion, around safety, and everything. I think that the performance of those of those places is just fantastic. Across the board, Kim and Ostosh agree these companies are also resilient. They were not hit hard by the great attrition, and their financial performance has been strong and steady. They've not had the mega revenue growth, the hyperscaling effect of what you would associate with tech companies and other companies that are going through a transition. But what you see is you see strong, stable, and steady performance. In other words, consistent and reliable, but potentially boring. What's not boring is the kind of wages workers are earning in these types of companies. Typically $60,000 a year versus $30,000 in the service sector. But then they also are much more oriented towards employ, uh, towards employing uh, f- folks for the longer term. So if you look at the benefits package and others, by the time you retire, you can actually retire with a comfortable income from these companies. Not only are they paying attractive salaries, they make improving the environment a priority. The purpose often starts by saying, how can they help the world decarbonize? How can they help with, in essence, move products and services cheaper? How do they keep the economy going better, faster, cleaner than has happened in the past? So Trex is an excellent example of a company that's done this. They transform waste to building materials by salvaging plastic and wood from landfills to make various materials for buildings, for benches. And what's really come of it is that they have created, frankly, superior products in a lot of cases, withstanding weather elements, et cetera. Each year, Trex saves 500 million pounds of wood and plastic from landfills, recycling 1.5 billion plastic bags annually. And so their entire business model is anchored in environmental stewardship. These industrial manufacturing companies don't just care for the environment. They defy the stereotype of a typical factory. You walk into a traditional manufacturing company and you get to you know, large halls that have typically not been uh, refurbished in decades. The place usually looks dark and dingy, not well lit. And it's very hard to actually be doing anything other than working out there just by yourself as an individual. That's kind of what traditional manufacturing is. 
Contrast that picture with an industrial tech company. The machines are new. Uh, the people are working together in teams. The place is inviting. You get the sense that there is something that is much more modern, much more oriented around precision manufacturing, whether it's using new materials, new technologies, uh, different types of equipment. Lots of newness in many companies that are old, small, and family-run. Do you find these businesses tend to be open to disrupting themselves digitally? I do actually think a lot of these family-owned businesses are open to disruption because it's, it's do or die, honestly. It is the survival. And if your family's built this business, you have a heck of a lot of passion to make that work. They're very purposeful and they're very focused, therefore, around the trends in the industry. What is it that the customers really care about? What is it happening within the supply chains? Suppose I'm a small, family-owned, industrials company. What's the playbook for taking my company to the next level and achieving scale? The playbook is you first get very focused around an area that you want to compete in and do well in. Focus is important, right? We call this micro-verticals. That's the first thing. Second is prudent acquisitions in these verticals to continue to build up a leading position as you, as you go through this. Third one is a continued relentless focus on operational performance. All aspects of operational performance uh, from manufacturing through supply chain. Beyond innovating their operations, these companies are starting to innovate their search and development of talent, like hiring people that have skills, but not college degrees. There are millions of people in the United States today who don't have four-year college degrees, but yet can be highly qualified in terms of doing the basic activities and tasks. They can design products from an operational standpoint. They can run the machines. They can become a line supervisor. From there, they might become a shift supervisor. From that, they might become a plant manager. And all of this is because they actually started by knowing, for example, what machining is, mm -hmm. what heat treatment is, mm -hmm. what welding is, mm -hmm. what process forming is. Right, what precision engineering and different types of, uh, of uh, technologies is. So the ability to teach people these things that uh, that really drive uh, these uh, the titanium economy companies. Right, I think that's a skill-based hiring approach uh, that 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 we have talked about, and I think that's where the that's where the uh, companies will need to go. In addition to skill-based hiring, Kim says companies can partner with educational institutions to improve the talent pipeline. As an example, there's Graco. So Graco has built relationships with educational institutions actually in five states where the company donates capital equipment, offers scholarships, partners on education programs, um, and really helps um, the folks in the community in those states basically upskill. In 2021, the funding exceeded 1.3 million. These partnerships can really benefit both the company and the community around it. Building partnerships requires that people know these companies exist. And as mentioned earlier, titanium economy companies don't invest in their own storytelling. They're unknown and undervalued relative to their flashier Silicon Valley counterparts. 
Many of these companies are so busy getting the job done that PR and marketing is not necessarily front and center for them. It's quiet. They're quiet. Yeah, exactly. It's understated. Yeah, they're understated. Yeah. Understated, hardworking, and financially thriving. Yet U.S. support of these industrial manufacturing companies pales in comparison to other countries. I do think in uh, the United States we need to significantly increase the investment into this sector versus other countries. For example, China is, I think, 200, per- 200 times more investment. They are constantly, their government and their businesses are constantly reinvesting in technology to lift up the entire manufacturing sector and learn new skills. Germany is another great example where the government invests incredibly heavily into these areas. And it's vital to increase investment now or risk being left behind other countries' development. We have probably less than five years to drive a meaningful lift for manufacturing in America. And it will take cooperation. From a range of stakeholders, including business, both private and public, government, academia, and communities in general to really rally together to make this change happen. Because there's a lot at stake. So if we don't support them or continue to support them to grow and prosper, I think it will really impact many communities throughout North America. And there's so much potential if we are able to upskill our workforce and become a really competitive manufacturing country, for sure it would help us competitively because it would bring our manufacturing costs and our overhead costs down dramatically, as well as position us as a leader in certain technologies and on the sustainability issues. And those issues, they're the kinds we want. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.